Well, good morning. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the joy and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord God, that you died and that you rose for us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. So I went to the bank last week and I said to Kat, Love, is there anything that you think I should take with me? Anything I might need? And she said, yes, a mask, a weapon, and something to wipe away your fingerprints. <laughs> Our world has changed. This is a very weird world. It's a very weird Easter. But the good news is, it's not the weirdest Easter. If you transported someone from last year to right now, they would be very confused by the things they're seeing. But within a few weeks, they would start to understand and That's the same experience as the people in our passage today are having. Within just a few weeks of the resurrection, previously unimaginable things have become normal. And uh, we're looking right now at their first reactions as they start to wrestle with the evidence, as they wake up on Resurrection Sunday and they look at the empty tomb and try and understand what is going on. That's the question today. What is the reason for the resurrection? It happened for a reason. What is the reason? Look with me, please, at verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. This is just the first weird thing that people see in this passage. It's a very heavy stone. It would have been rolled down into place, probably. It was hard to move. It was illegal to move it. Another gospel writer tells us the tomb was guarded by soldiers, so she's confused, and she ran to share the news. And in verse 2, just verse 2, we have the first theory about what it is that's going on. And her assumption in verse 2 is very logical. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, we don't know who they is. But they can't be good, can they, if they've done this? And so verse 3, the the pace starts to build. It's a very fast-paced account. Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Verse 4 continues, both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Who is this other disciple that wins the race? Well, that would be John. And who is it that considers this detail so important that he writes a whole book of Holy Scripture to preserve the results? That would also be John. Verse 5 tells us, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. It's the second weird thing to see. But he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him. In case you'd forgotten, he's slower, that's why he's following. And he went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, past tense, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. This is the third weird thing to see. If someone had removed the body, it is very unlikely that they would have undressed it first. That would be unusual. Even the way the cloths are spread about is weird. Some say that the folded head cloth is twirled or twisted or wound or bound around and wrapped in the original language in the uh, same way it would have been if the head was still inside of it, as though the head had 
passed through the cloths. And then other scholars say, no, 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 it doesn't mean that at all. You're reading too much into it. It was neatly folded up by itself on the side. In all honesty, we're just speculating that there's something weird about the cloth. Something about it that draws attention and raises questions. We can just speculate exactly what it looked like, but something about the cloth surprised them. This is certainly not a hastily arranged scene, not the place of disturbance. In fact, there's something about the way it looks that makes them think in some way it's deliberate, even planned, perhaps. Then, verse 8, the other disciple, who? Who's that then? The one who had reached the tomb first, just in case you've forgotten, also went in and he saw and believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. He wrestles with the evidence. He reaches the conclusion that it's not a robbery. It's some sort of resurrection. But verse 9 says, they did not understand why. Verse 9, for as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. That's our question today. Why? Why must he rise from the dead? Well, one possibility is that the word scripture here means the whole of the Old Testament, that the whole Old Testament pointed to this moment, and the children's ministry materials are really clear about this today. God has been promising this moment from the first pages of scripture. From Genesis, indeed, and repeated many times, he's been promising this. The thing is, when the Bible talks about itself, it doesn't usually say scripture singular, it says scriptures plural. So perhaps there's one specific scripture in mind right here that had to be fulfilled. And many scholars believe that it's our psalm appointed for today, Psalm 16, where it says, and we just said, for you shall not leave my soul in the grave, neither shall you allow your Holy One to see corruption. It means decay, or the pit, or the grave. It is a promise that although God's Holy One would die, and although God's Holy One would be buried, God's Holy One would not decompose, not die, not stay dead, but resurrect. Why must it happen? <clears throat> well, God said it would happen. But why did God say it would happen? It's a little bit circular, isn't it, to say, well, God said it would happen, so it had to happen because he said it would happen. Why did he say it would happen? Why has God been promising this moment since Genesis? Why has he planned this moment since before the creation of all things? I believe the reason is you. You are the reason for the resurrection. The reason for his death was you. The reason he died was to pay for you. Listen to two excellent Good Friday sermons from the Bens on that subject. The reason for his death was you. He faced the death that you deserved. And he substituted his life for you. The reason for the resurrection is you as well. It is to resurrect you. Not just your spirit, but all of you. Including your flesh. All of you. Our entire sermon series that we're in now until Pentecost is, is really about this subject. We could sum it up in two words. Matter matters. The flesh matters to God. 
God is not a God of the spirit world wafting around, you know. He is the God of all things. It's very popular in certain circles right now to say that the resurrection was just a metaphor. It's a lovely idea if you're sitting in a classroom. It's a horrible idea if you're dying in a hospital. You don't want a metaphor if you're on your deathbed. You want a resurrection. God is real. Death is real. Sin is real. You are real. The resurrection is real. The good news is that if his death was for you, then his resurrection is for you as well. He resurrected for you. That's the reason for it. When we think about our physical bodies, when we think about the flesh, the meat that we walk around in, we make two mistakes. Two equal but opposite mistakes, I think. The first is to think that we can deal with it. We can deal with the problems of the flesh ourselves. The second mistake is to think that God cannot. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, a lot of us think if we could just try harder, we could make God love us. If we could just become more spiritual somehow, more holy, more dedicated, more disciplined, then we could get right with God. I could maybe use my higher mind to control my base desires, or I could even just transcend my body and have a a mystical and spiritual experience of the soul, perhaps, and that would be enough. The problem is, even if you have the best spiritual retreat you've ever been on in your life, you still have to come home and deal with dinner, and a broken cat flap, or Schoology, which is a digital torture device for students and teachers that we're going to be using from now until September. Oh, goody. Even our holiest intentions fail. You can't just waft about. You are real. And the reality is that your flesh is fallen. Your flesh is fallen. This is illustrated to me almost every single day by my dog. No matter how much we clean him, he gets dirty again. We clean him, we go, oh look, he's fluffy, he's clean, he's lovely, and then he goes out and gets dirty. We take him to the groomers, we bring him home and he runs straight out into the yard and rolls in something. It's an impulse, he can't help it. His dog flesh cries out to him from deep within, rolling it. It's good. He doesn't want a blueberry face wash. He's a dog. He wants filth. Actually, to be quite honest with you, rugby has mixed feelings. Because the filth in the yard calls to him from deep within. But but he also loves to be petted. He loves to be welcomed into the family. He knows that my wife, Kat, is a conditional lover. And unless he's being conditioned, she will not love him. (laughs) But the flesh calls out, rolling it, and he finds himself pulled in two directions. It's the yard. Before long, it's always the yard. We are rugby. All of us. That's us. That's me. We do this all the time. I'm going to have a holy day. But it calls. Hopefully not the yard. But something calls. God's plan is not just to 
pull us up out of our bodies and pull us up out of this world into some disembodied spiritual realm somewhere. God's plan is to redeem our bodies, indeed to redeem the whole world, and the resurrection is just the first fruit of this plan to recreate all things. The resurrection is real, therefore our hope is real. Now, if the first mistake we make, as I said, is a serious underestimation about the fallenness of the flesh and the power of the flesh, the second equal opposite serious mistake and underestimation is the power of God and the grace of God. It is greater than your sin. Now, sometimes the devil convicts us, as we heard just last week, makes us believe that somehow our sin is special. Well, this Jesus stuff is good for, for them, but you don't understand what I've done. You see, I'm, I'm, a, I'm in a new category. I'm a particular kind of sinner. Other people, better people than me, they get saved. But I'm unredeemable. Or maybe my situation is unredeemable. There's even a Lumineers song about this been singing it until I realised it was wrong. It's called Sleeping on the Floor, and the lyrics are these. I won't sing them, I'll just say them. If the sun don't shine on me today, and if the subways flood and the bridges break, Jesus Christ can't save me now. Don't make that the little clip for today's sermon, will you? It's a quote, and it's wrong. Jesus, uh, the song goes, can only redeem situations that are of a medium-level kind of a nature. You know, if they're modest problems, then Jesus can save them. As though our salvation were dependent upon already being okay. That's the song. Well, it's not, is it? Otherwise, they would not call it salvation, would they? They'd just call it being all right. Jesus didn't come into the world to augment the world, to tweak it, to improve it a little bit. He defeated the greatest enemy that is death. Even his own death, he defeated. We need to hear this now. This is the day that we need to hear this. There is hope for this world. The hope for this world comes from outside of this world. But it is a hope to renew this world, to bring heaven to it. People are are saying that this coronavirus has ruined Easter. I'm asking, has it? Really? Do you think so? Surely, if ever there were a year to proclaim the reality of the resurrection, it would be this one. Amen. If there were ever a time to seek the resurrection, it would be this one. Surely it would be the year when the subways have flooded and the bridges have failed and science has failed and the economy has failed and our hospitals have failed and our politics has failed. Surely it would be a year like that for us to evaluate whether we have been putting our trust in the wrong things, putting our trust in the flesh. And not to shake off the flesh, but to seek the redemption of the flesh. Death is at the very door. But so is life. If you've reached the point where today you believe that Jesus Christ is your only hope, then this is 
the second best ever Easter. You've discovered the reason for the resurrection. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious God who meets us in the flesh and redeems it, breaks the power of sin on the cross, breaks the power of death in the grave and resurrects the first fruit, the first resurrection. God, you now call us to look for that moment where we'll be raised with you. And God, we pray that you would come soon, Lord Jesus, to make all things new. Find us ready by grace alone. In the name of Jesus.